1: So we are now covering chapters 4 and 5 of Leviticus. And we're going to be talking about the expiatory sacrifices. And um, these are known as the Hattat and the Asham. So this is a a continuation, obviously, of our study. Uh, We've seen initially the three main important sacrifices which are offered for many occasions. These are specifically for expiation. Now... Again, let us remind ourselves that the purpose of these expiatory sacrifices is to secure atonement and forgiveness from God. And these offerings are efficacious only when offenses are inadvertent, meaning not intentional, and unwitting. Only in those cases. They do not apply to defined acts or premeditated crimes. Now, the, when, you, when we, we're going to read um, select verses from these chapters, but we, it is important to remember that the laws of chapters 4 and 5 do not specify all the offenses for which such, such sacrifices are mandated. But there is a correspondence between these offenses requiring the expiatory offerings and those punishable by the penalty known as karet, which is the cutting off. In other words, in these two chapters, God really focused on the cases where you would be cut off from the community. And he's essentially saying that when acts that would cause you to be cut off from the community are committed unwittingly, then there are ways for you to be forgiven. So forgiven in this context simply means you're not cut off. The punishment does not apply. It does not mean restoration to a state of grace. Do you understand? Because there is no state of grace at this point. There is no grace to be given since Christ has not yet opened the gates of heaven. Therefore, the flow of grace is not present. Yeah? So, correct, the being cutting off, was always, involved initially actual banishment. You had to leave. So, in our language we would say you were excommunicated. Excommunio ex means outside, right? Communio communion, right? You were cut off from the community. And these punishments were seen as a as given directly by God, in contrast to those imposed by the community or by the leaders. Correct was inflicted for variety of religious sins, desecration of the Sabbath, eating leaven on Passover, or for moral behavior like committing adultery. So either because you broke the law liturgically, or you broke the law morally. Those things would cause you to be cut off. Now obviously, so I, I told you some, some of those were listed, but not all. It's really hard to commit adultery unwittingly, as you may imagine, right? So therefore, that could not be listed as an unwitting offense. Other types of um, other types of activity that would cause you to be cut off would be. Crimes between man and man when, when these involved oaths taken in God's name or the misappropriation of sanctuary property. Now, what is really important in those two chapters is that they reflect a deep concern for sanctity. Um, in the book of Leviticus, the word love is used twice, the entire book. And it is in two verses which are pretty much synonymous. Love your neighbor like yourself. And again, repeated later, about the stranger and sojourner amongst you, you will love him like yourself. That's it. The only time where the word love is used. Holy is used 93 times in Leviticus. That's why we call it the code of holiness. God is concerned with keeping the sanctuary holy. He's concerned in teaching us about holiness. And holiness is something that we are very much allergic to. It provokes a re- an allergic reaction in us. And this is why many saints were persecuted even by their own folks because it was really hard to put up with them. Okay? As an example, I can give you, uh, this is taken from the life of St. Charbel. So St. Charbel practiced the virtue. So if you don't know who he is, he was a monk who lived in Lebanon. He died in 1898 on Christmas Eve while celebrating Mass. He was a hermit. So the Maronite order has still t- today hermits who consecrate their lives for prayer. And Saint Charbel practiced the virtue of obedience to a degree that is really hard for us to understand. And I'll give you two examples, actually, three, which are very funny. First one, first of all, Saint Charbel obeyed everybody. Even though he was a priest, he obeyed the brothers, he obeyed the cook, he obeyed the lay workers, he obeyed everybody, without any discrimination. That we would have issues with, because we might think, right, reasonably, well, you know, you have to decide if you're going to obey, right? Well, one day, they were working the field, and there was a man in charge of the oven, and they're feeding wood into the oven. And he had an irascible character. So he got irritated with Father Charbel and he told him, semi-jokingly, obviously, Father Charbel, uh, if you, something to the extent, if you keep on doing what you're doing, we're going to feed you as wood to the fire. Immediately, Father Charbel fell to his knees and said, May God give me the grace to obey you, brother. Now, we might characterize this as, you know, the behavior maybe of a simpleton or kind of idiotic. Another example, the same man was so annoyed with him, with Father sharbel for some reason, he told him to go get wood from the other hill, which means he had to go down a canyon and up a canyon. Well, at 10 o'clock that night, Father Superior was looking for Father Sharbel, didn't find him anywhere, until finally he saw him coming back, carrying wood on his back from that hill. He dropped everything and went to pick up the wood from that hill. The third example, usually when you work in the field, there is a moment where you stop to go eat. When well, Father Superior is walking by, he sees the workers sitting and eating, and he says, where, the, where, the, where is Father Charbel? And I say, we don't know. So he looks for him, and he sees him still working in the orchard. And he says, Father Charbel, didn't you eat? No. Why? Nobody told me. Well, what about yesterday? No. Why? Nobody told me. And the day before? No. I forgot to tell him, he didn't eat. It's really hard for us to know how to behave around people like that. So holiness isn't something that is completely natural for us. It's hard. God wants us to be schooled in the school of holiness. Not love that comes after. Holiness first. Because love is something that is really easy for us to meddle with. Holiness, on the other hand, is a lo- rather hard. We don't understand it. It's foreign. So if we start it there, it will give us the right understanding of what love means. Because love must be rooted in holiness. Put it differently. You love to the degree you're holy. And you're holy in as much as you can love. Right? So, it's holiness. Now, what, how does holiness come about in the book of Leviticus? First, maintaining the purity of the sanctuary against all forms of defilement caused by the priesthood and the people. Purity of the sanctuary. God is really keenly interested in keeping the sanctuary pure. Why? Well, because it builds on, upon something that we are very comfortable with and something we really understand. How many of you would enjoy living in a house in, in a house that is filthy? Raise your hand. If there were rats walking around and, and, and dirt all over the place and decaying the meat on the floor, the rats: No, no, don't go to the details. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yes, everybody cares. Everybody cares. Of of course, none of us would like to live in a filthy house, right? You understand that? God uses that notion that is ingrained in us about natural cleanliness and builds upon it. He's basically saying something very logical. If you want your house to be clean... And you're right to have a clean house. I want a house that is clean. Yeah? But he does something peculiar. He delegates... the upkeep of his house to us. Whereas we, generally speaking, do not delegate the upkeep of our house to our neighbors. We do it ourselves. Oh, we may have a hired hand to come and help, but we... Stay on top of it, right? Now, when God delegates the upkeep of his house to us, what does that mean? What does it mean? What kind of relationship is he establishing at this point? Family. Not yet, not family. Master, That's it. Servants. Right? Servants. We're starting right there. Right? You are in your master's house. You keep it clean. Yeah? All right. Now you see how this is building up to when Christ comes. Because Christ doesn't take any of that away. Christ never says, don't clean my house. In fact, what does he do himself? He got so angry that he took what? A whip. Right? My father's house is a house of prayer. He got so angry. So many of his discourse, especially in the Gospel of St. John, are centered on the temple. Destroy this temple, rebuild it in three days. So that house is very important. Yeah, He didn't take that away. The difference, back to what Richard was saying earlier, is that now we maintain the upkeep of the house not as... Servants, but as children. Well, think about it. Who would, be, who would have a greater interest at keeping house clean? The children. The children. Why? Why the children? Live there. Because they live there. Servants don't. The Israelites were not allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, were they? They lived outside where servants would live. We are given entry into the Holy of Holies. So we are supposed to keep the house of the Lord clean, pure. Right? And we'll get to that later. But I just want to see, show you how Leviticus and the rest of the Pentateuch is really a school, it's a school in recognizing Christ and His mission. Yeah? And then we now are looking back into these books to better understand what God's intent is for us because we live in the world of confusion. So much has changed and we're faced by so many different currents, ideological currents, that things can be confusing. How are Catholics supposed to behave in church? What does it mean to be a Catholic? Catholic. What is God's plan for us? How does God work in our lives? Is God in control? If so, how? Much of that all, that, all that framework has been diluted, if not completely lost. So we go back, and as we study this, we reflect on it, and we understand better what his intent is for us today. All right. I said, therefore, that maintaining the purity of the sanctuary is one of the goals. The other one is assuring the acceptability of all Israelites in God's sight. Allowing Israelites to be acceptable in his presence. Because remember, they're servants. They need to have an audience with the king. In order to do that, you must be acceptable before the king. So, in the Assyrian um, uh, kingdom, in the Babylonian kingdom, in the Chaldean kingdom... In the Egyptian as well, not everyone, and later on, actually, most of the kings, kingdoms, not everybody had access to the king. Just as today, not everybody has access to the president, for that matter, right? It takes, it requires special privilege, and there's a preparation, there's a whole bunch of things you need to do to get there. Well, here, God is saying, there are certain things you must do in order to be acceptable before me. And Why is he doing that? Because by teaching us about him, he teaches us about us. Which is what we need to better understand. You see? By understanding how holy God is, we understand how unholy we are. We know which areas we need to work on. We know which areas we need to improve in. St. Augustine's prayer. Lord, let me know you that I may know myself. That's the principle. The more you know God, the more you know yourself. By negation. Because we are not God. If nothing else, if we can learn that lesson, I am not God, in every detail of my life, then we're on our way. So, In the the laws of chapters 4 and 5, there is an inherent, a deep connection between sinfulness and impurity. Now, to us, it seems obvious. But it's a framework that has been established in Leviticus, which was not obvious and not shared necessarily by all cultures around them. Namely, that if you transgress the liturgical law, you become impure, and sinful. Impurity deals with the law. What makes you unclean? Well, you broke one of the laws. Simple as that. You touched a dead body. You're unclean. Yeah? Sinfulness is moral. Here, God is starting to establish a tie-in between the two. He's saying... In When you breach the law that I'm giving you, recognize there is something morally wrong with you. There's a connection between the two. I'll give you an example that might be shocking. In the Latin rubric of the Mass, nowhere in the Latin rubric of the Mass does it say that when we say the Our Father we open our arms. In fact, the rubric is very clear. We keep our hands joined together. That's how we pray in the Latin Rite. So, when in the Latin Rite you stand up and you open your hands to pray, that would be the equivalent of an impurity. You're breaking the liturgical law. What does it say about you morally? It says a bunch of stuff, actually. It says you're not careful enough to inform yourself on how you must worship. It says you would rather possibly indulge yourself in certain gestures than follow the rubric. It says you might have tendencies of rebellion and tendencies of disobedience. And it says you might be lukewarm in your love to God because you're more interested in satisfying yourself than you are in satisfying the the law of God. I'll give you a more, perhaps a more striking example. Two. One, in the Maronite liturgy, at one point, the priest explicitly says, bow your heads and receive God's blessing. What's the implication? You don't bow your heads, you're not receiving God's blessing. Yeah? Yeah. So what if you stood there and didn't bow your head? You don't but what is it saying? So you broke a liturgical law. What is it saying about your... You see how the two are connected? I'll give you a third example. If you're a Latin rite, if, you're, if that's your right, and Latin church, actually, we're, we're supposed to drop the word right and just stick to churches. And you are celebrating Mass in the Maronite church or any Eastern churches... At the time of the consecration, you're supposed to stand, not kneel. That's what the rubric asks of you. You stand. Now, you might, you might object to that. You might not like it. It doesn't taste good or right. You might have issues because in the Latin rites, some people don't want you to kneel, and so we're now transferring that over to the Eastern rites. But it doesn't matter. Yeah? You do what the rubric says, not how you feel. So if you decided, oh, no, it feels right for me to kneel, again, you're breaking a liturgical law. What does it say about your moral stand? Do you understand? Those are examples that are closer to us than you touch a dead body. How many of us touch a dead body these days? Right? Right? or dead animal, or whatever, right? We, we can't connect anymore to touching a dead animal and being thinking there's something wrong in our morality, right? Because we're not that kind of society anymore. But back then, if an animal dies and is just dead, right? Just found a dead animal. Let's say a cow, a dead cow. What can might go in your head? Well, that's one way to think of it. Dinner. Dinner Dinner for me, my family, and everybody else, right? It's wealth. Here's another example. You find an iPhone on the floor. What might go through your head? Disease? No. Okay. Well, maybe. Right? What might go through your head is, ooh, well, the screen's not cracked. <laughs> okay. So, I, I'm just trying to... The, 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 there is a very... There, there is a big distance between how we live things and how the Israelites live them. Because not only there is time, not only there is language, but there is also a completely different culture. Agrarian versus technological. So we have to bridge the gap. But the principles are still the same. The difference, though... The difference is that Israel Israel was far more aware of these consequences than we are. Why do you suppose this is the case? Why have we lost awareness of, these, of, the, of the importance of these laws and Israel didn't? Surrounded by everything. Be more specific. What do you mean by surrounded by everything? Right, but what I said was... It doesn't apply anymore. What I'm talking about are things more directed towards the way we celebrate the liturgy. Things that we do that maybe speak a little bit more to us. Why is it that we're not as sensitive to those things as they were? Yes. Yes. So there is also a uh, the, the, the leniency that has been introduced, which is connected with the corollary to this business of not, not you know, having a fear of God. Yes? Yes. So there's a disruption between civil law and divine law. Civil law is not tracking to divine law. Therefore, in our day-to-day living, it invites us to behave in a certain way that is not in harmony with divine law. Yes. Please man instead of pleasing God. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Exactly. So technology, individualism, relativism, all the isms that, that are part of society today are pulling us away from, from God, right? So the question... Now, before I get to the question, let's go back to the Israelites. We may think it's very different, but the truth of the matter is, it isn't. Where have they come from? Egypt. They just come from Egypt. It's been two years. What's Egypt? Yes, so it's an economic center... They have a very strong cult of different gods. They had style. They had fashion. Yeah? They had parties. Right? So think about everything we said right now, and you can pretty much apply it to Egypt. It's not that different. You see that? In fact, the church is constantly confronted by these issues. In her long history, those are the issues that continuously come up. The long, the long struggle of the church in Europe is uh, living proof of all of that. Right? The kings pushing one way, pulling away from the church to fulfill their own ambitions, and the church trying to redress the course. So this is not new. What is really interesting, though, is the medicine that God proposes, which is not at all the medicine we may have come up with. You see, when we think about all these ills, the first thing that comes to our mind is a form of control, one way or the other. So if I were the president, now I'll get things straightened up. I'll set these laws, I'll stop those other laws, and I'll do this and then the other. Good thing, good thing to be able to reestablish society on a really good moral ground. But it doesn't solve the problem. Right? Because what is lurking, what is lurking is the exact opposite tendency which we had under the Jansenists. Right? And in some ways today, under those who refuse Vatican II, which I call the God formalism. I want the form of the Mass to be perfect for the sake of the form of the Mass. You understand? I want perfection in liturgy for the sake of perfection in liturgy. It would be like a, uh, a parent who wants the house to be clean for the sake of the house and therefore exercise tyrannical control over the children. Do you see that? So we had that also. So control doesn't fix the problem, because it can take us this way. So God has a remedy. But it's really strange to our ears, just as it was strange to the Israelites. What do you think it's called? Not quite. (laughs) Not (laughs) enslavement. No. It's called liturgy. That's the remedy. It's weird. It's called liturgy. So, if we as Catholics... Where to focus less on social issues and fighting those who are against the church, meaning focus less on the action and focus more on adoration and beautiful liturgies, God will take care of the rest. It's counterintuitive. That's why we have such a hard pro- time with it. We've been conditioned to think in terms of action. We should do this and go fix that and take care of this and then the other. Just as the Israelites were also conditioned to think this way. God says, no, 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 no. Holiness is the answer. Holiness takes care of everything. All the problems. Holiness fixes the world. That's where it starts. That's the focus. And this is precisely what we are allergic to. And this is precisely what we don't want to engage in because it's back to us now. It's no longer what the worlds are doing and what these other people are doing. It's back to what am I doing? This is why his focus is so strong on the liturgy. The whole book of Leviticus is how you're going to worship, how you offer sacrifice, how you're going to behave. Why? Because that's the medicine we need. Then and now. Now, so in chapter 4, you notice that God goes through a list of people who can commit certain inadvertent sins. And He starts right away with, if it is the anointed priest, that word, anointed priest, verse 3, doesn't mean any priest. It means the high priest. Okay? if it is the anointed priest, because only the high priest would be anointed with oil. yeah. If it is the anointed priest that committed an inadvertent sin, now listen carefully to what he says, because it is striking. If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people. If the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people. That's The other aspect of this whole business that we're not comfortable with, back to the point of the individual. We want to be on our own. Our action concerns only us, concerns nobody else, and whatever everybody else does does not concern me. Then we're cool. But it doesn't work this way. We're family. You see? We are responsible. And the high priest if even he commits an unwitting, unwittingly, he committed a sin unwittingly, he's bringing guilt on the entire people. What about us? What about us? As a father, I can bring guilt on my entire family. Holiness makes you think of that. Makes you mindful of that. And therefore, you're not just thinking about your own actions and what this does to you. You're also looking around you. Right? Job, every morning, the good man Job, every morning when he woke up, he offered sacrifices lest any one of his children had committed a sin. He knew that by him offering in a sacrifice, he could expiate for the sins of his children. He understood the deep covenantal relationship there is in a family. This is another aspect that when we don't focus on holiness, we miss. Now you may say to me, well, we're going to learn that. How do we learn that? It's not in books. And what do we have to do? Sort of tie an umbilical cord to you and follow you everywhere you go? To learn? No, you don't. It's when we start focusing on holiness, that's the school in which the Holy Spirit instructs all of us in our hearts you see because it's certainly it's certainly logical i mean if it is god's house if the church is god's house and god is present and i say i love god what must i do i must be at all times mindful of his presence in his church well if i'm really mindful of god's presence in the church don't you think this has an impact on the way i behave in the church what I'm willing to do and not do, how I stand and how I sit. Yeah? Nobody has to say anything. You're just mindful. And this is how the Holy Spirit instructs you. So, first the priest, and then there is an explanation on what must he do in order to atone for that sin, and we'll get to it. If the whole congregation of Israel, second, so first the high priest, Then, the entire congregation commits a sin unwittingly, and a thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and are guilty. When the sin that they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer, etc., etc. Right? Okay. Next, a ruler. When a ruler sins, same principle, same idea, unwittingly committing a sin, And then, if any one of the common people sins unwittingly. So, you see there's this gradation from the high priest, to the the entire congregation, the entire community, to a ruler, and then to the common man. Everybody has to follow the same principle. Everybody has to offer sacrifice to be acceptable before the Lord. In chapter 5, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he's a witness... Yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. So what does that mean? You were in public, there was an adjuration calling Rich to testify. That was three weeks ago. On the day we were supposed to testify, something happened. I don't know. Stephen crashed the car. Well, the testifying went out of his head. Rich was not... Right? He was going to testify. He knew he had to testify. He just forgot. That's what we're talking about here. All right? So, here's another thing you need to be very clear about. When we speak of sins, but also of good actions, there is a part which is objective, and there is a part which is subjective. Now, when I say subjective, I don't mean, I do not mean what most people mean by subjective, as in, well, you know, it depends how you feel about it. No. I'm using them in the anthropological sense, in the sense of man. In the sense of anthropology, objective means as regards to an object. Subjective is as regards to the subject. So, for instance, if I say, um, so-and-so... Um, said hi to so-and-so. Jamie said hi to Ben. The experience may be very different between Jamie and Ben. So as to Ben, the recipient of the hello, he's the object in the action, he might live it one way because maybe Jamie had never said hi to him 40 years. right? And he will live it one way. Now, Jamie... We'll live it subjectively, meaning as regards to him as the subject of the action. Maybe he had amnesia, and he just forgot that he didn't say hi for 40 years. So to him, it's nothing more than just hello. And to Ben, it's almost ne- you know, nearly a heart attack. You see? Okay. So, objectively, meaning when I look at the action in itself, regardless of what the intention of the subject were, right? if... Uh, I walk in, the house, in, in this room and I'm so excited and I'm just, um, I don't know, I drank three energy power drink, whatever the case may be, and I just hit the wall and broke it. Now, regardless of how I feel and regardless of what my intentions were, if I leave this room, what do people see? A broken wall. That's the, objectively, the wall is broken, Right? So likewise, when Rich did not go to testify, objectively, he broke the law. Do you understand that? In the eyes of God, in the eyes of God, that's an offense. It's offensive. I want you to think about that because, again, we tend to project on God our own sort of lenient subjectivity. You see, earlier on we said that we're lenient, that we, we talked about the fact this culture is lenient. Guess what? We are lenient when it comes to us. We tend to have that leniency because we can explain why we did what we did and we can justify and give good reasons and defend. Right? When it comes to us, every one of us is a, is a lawyer and a judge. So, God, in God's eyes, sin is a lack of harmony in the order of things. It's like a mistake in a math equation, a false note in music. It's something that is jarring, something that goes against the order of creation as he willed it. Therefore, it is offensive to God. The thing by itself, right? Sin is the absence of grace. Sin is not a thing. right? God didn't create sin because sin is not a thing. It's a nothing. It's the absence of grace. So the absence of grace is offensive to God. Do you understand that? Regardless of whether you were guilty or not, it's an offense against God and and His majesty. That's one of the lessons in the Code of Holiness. You've got to realize that even when you commit a venial sin, even when you did something unwittingly, it is still an offense before God. Don't take it for granted. Don't excuse yourself automatically. Yeah, God is merciful. Absolutely He's merciful. But let's not take, let's not take advantage of God it still hurts him to see this offense. It's like a great artist who's working on this masterpiece and a toddler walks in and then spray paints on it. The toddler doesn't know what he's doing, right? So it's unwitting. But does that mean that the artist is not offended? Wouldn't you be? I mean, wouldn't you be upset if somebody does something like this, to a work of art you've been working on? Wouldn't you be upset? Do you understand what I'm saying, how we take God for granted? We we'll sort of, you know, excuse ourselves and never even think twice about how God is seeing this. The school of holiness teaches us otherwise. Okay. So, you did something you're not supposed to do. You touched human uncleanness. You uttered with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good. That's something where we tend to do quite a bit. Be careful with those things. Right? Be careful. If, you have, if you're in the habit of saying, I swear to God, stop right away. Because you're offending God. It's very offensive to say, I swear to God. If you have friends who, tend, who, who says when something happens, they'll say the name of the Lord. Just realize that on the spot, they're holding a one-way ticket to hell in their hands. Pray they don't die. The name of Jesus Christ is not to be messed with. So pray for them. Pray for them. So... Don't take rash oaths, oaths. and we know, really, you know, Exhibit A, Saint Peter, right? Right. Even if all of these abandon you, I will die with you. You will die with me before the cock crows three times. I will. You will deny. You will have denied me before the cock crows. You will have denied me three times, right? How did he deny him the third time? He swore he didn't know him. That was a rash oath. Yeah. Okay. So, in all these cases, you must bring an offering. Yeah? Okay. So, in, in the case of the sin offering, which is called the hatat, which the first hatat is prescribed in 4.3, chapter 4, verse 3 through 21. It consists of a young bull bull offered in the case when the chief priest of the collective community of Israelites was guilty. And it has something unusual about it, which is that the blood taken from the sacrificial victim was brought inside the shrine. Not even in the case of a Holocaust offering you had to do that. But in this case, you had to take the blood and bring it inside the shrine. Which means behind the veil, not into the Holy of Holies, into the Holy. And furthermore, no part of the sacrifice was consumed by the priest. It was completely burned, not even the hide which usually is left on the side. Nothing is left of it. Right? The second type, which is in, prescribed in, in, chapter, in, in verses 22 of chapter 4 through 5.13, is a goat or a sheep, but in certain instances, offerings of birds or grain could be substituted for an animal. Such an offering was mandated in the event an individual Israelite or a tribal chief inadvertently committed a forbidden act. So, God made, made allowances for smaller offerings to accommodate for the social status of people. didn't have enough money to do that. So, inadvertence, unwittingly, were in, in two, one of two respects. Either re- with respect to the facts of the law, or with respect to the nature of the act. So, the offender might be unaware, for instance, that the act was in violation of the law. okay. Or, he may not be aware that the act itself is violating the law. So, for instance, in their case, a person may be eating forbidden fat, which is called helev, thinking it was merely ordinary fat. So, he thought this is not this is, a, um, this is food that he could eat, but in fact it was forbidden. But he didn't know that. So he was aware of the law, but the act itself violated it, or he was simply unaware of the law and aided it. In both of those cases, there is inadvertence. The law was broken; God is offended. If the person, now, if the person remembers and does not come forth, and witnesses come forth and accuse him, then punishment follows. You understand? This is the context, by the way, to the words of Jesus Christ when he said, if as you go to to present your offering, right, you remember something, you remember, notice this is inadvertence, remember that your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled with him, lest it brings you to the judge. So the entire reference of that passage of the gospel in St. Matthew, I believe, is Levitical. Jesus is not talking about an action you did on purpose. You did something, you didn't realize it was bad, you forgot about it, and then you remembered. Then you, should, you better go and take care of it before he brings you over. And a judge then will, will take the action of punishment. Okay. Now, in religious terms, even inadvertent offenses were there where there is not any intent to violate the commandments, might immediately arouse God's wrath and result in divine punishment. God's wrath is easily kindled by carelessness in maintaining... Listen carefully. God's wrath is easily kindled by carelessness in maintaining the purity of His earthly sanctuary and by the improper execution of religious duties. We don't even think about that. Walk in the church, start talking, say hi to people, act as if it's a salon. We sit, we cross our legs, we don't even think about it. We don't even realize what we're doing. And we're not realizing that God's wrath is easily kindled by these types of behavior. I'm telling you right now, we will not. It's an illusion to think you can fix America or the world. It's an illusion to think you will get the right president or the right laws while the liturgy is being violated. Not going to happen. God is not a fool. And he doesn't intend for us to be fooled in thinking that the liturgy is less important than running the world. It isn't. It's the other way around. Because when the world is gone and the universe is gone and all the stars are, are turned into dust, the liturgy is, is going to still be celebrated. So, elsewhere, we are assured that God is slow to anger. In Leviticus, the sense of the reality of divine wrath should not be underestimated. Mitigating and preventing that wrath is a major objective of the religious life. Now, that was for Leviticus, because there was no grace. The only thing he could do was to mitigate God's wrath. In our case, we have the mercy of Christ. And the mercy of Christ is a wondrous thing. And the more you understand God's justice and wrath, the more you are amazed by by the mercy that God gives us. Because in His mercy, God does not turn away from us. Even when we are ready to turn away from ourselves, he doesn't. So Jesus sees our mistakes, sees our sinfulness, sees our brokenness, sees how we are weak. But What does he do? As long as we have a sincere heart and a contrite heart, he walks with us and slowly teaches us his ways. And slowly turns us to him and slowly helps us to learn to act like him he would like us to act to the degree that we are in correspondence with his will to that degree we can attain sanctity on this earth but he is willing to bear with us far more than we are willing to bear with ourselves and the proof is in the pudding because the the mere fact that we detest ourselves causes us to lash at others Right? When somebody lashes at you, you know something is, something is the matter. They have an issue. If you haven't realized that, usually that's the case. There's something bugging them. That's why they're lashing at you. Jesus doesn't. Even when we would, he doesn't. So he extends his mercy. But Jesus is not to be um, taken for granted. If we are unwilling to change, despite all the gentle invitation he gives us, if he, we are unwilling to w- truthfully work on ourselves, be contrite, and say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm messing up, I'm sorry, then don't expect mercy. Because he's, he's not a fool. Do you understand? Now, don't take it from me. Listen to Our Lady. In her apparition in Fatima, Lucia asked about two young women who had died recently and was told that one was in heaven and the other, her friend Amelia. So Lucia, when Our Lady appeared to her, was uh, 16? Was she 16? Or younger than 16? Something. I don't think she was older than 16. I'm not sure she was 16, right? So she had a friend, Amelia, which probably wasn't that older. And Our Lady told her, Amelia would be in purgatory until the end of the world. She's still there. We're talking about a young girl here. In purgatory until the end of the world. And you know... That purgatory isn't for mortal sin. Purgatory, in order to go to purgatory, you must be in a state of grace. You must be reconciled to God. And what lands you in purgatory is either you have venial sins on your soul, that haven't been yet purified, or you have temporal punishment due to sin. Those are the two reasons that will land you in purgatory. She's maybe 16 years old, and she's going to be there until the end of the world. Reflect on that. God is not to be tampered. I mean, it's not to be... God is not your buddy. Now, here was Our Lady added, are you willing to offer yourselves to God and bear all the sufferings He wills to send you as an act of reparation for the conversion of sinners? So notice how the language of Our Lady is very Levitical. Are you willing to offer yourselves to God? So we're talking about sacrifices. And we're talking about a holocaust. A whole burnt offering here. right? And bear all the sufferings he will send to you. He wills to send you. Why? As an act of reparation. What were these holocausts for? They were an act of reparation. So here, you offer yourself up, you bear the sufferings as an act of reparation for the conversion of sinners. This summarizes it. For the conversion of sinners. Not for you, for them. And then she adds, then you are going to have much to suffer, but the grace of God will be your comfort. But the grace, key on that word, the grace of God will be your comfort. Right? And then key that with the words of Jesus Christ who says, come to me, all you who are burdened, and take up my yoke, for it is light. Why? Grace makes it light. Now, Lucia made some requests, being informed that people must, and then she was informed that people must amend our lives and ask forgiveness of their sins if they wanted healings or conversions. And then Our Lady added, Do not offend the Lord our God anymore because He is already much too offended. This is not Old Testament language. This is Our Lady speaking. So that is very much a reality we must bear. I want to quote to you A passage about sin. Actually, two passages from the Catechism. Passage 1863. Venial sin weakens charity. Venial sin weakens charity. It manifests a disordered affection for created goods. It impedes, it prevents the soul's progress in the exercise of the virtues and the practice of of the moral good. I'm reading from paragraph 1863. It merits temporal punishment. Deliberate and unrepented venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. However, venial sin does not break the covenant with God. With God's grace, it is humanly reparable. Venial sin does not deprive the sinner of sanctifying grace Friendship with God, charity, and consequently eternal happiness. Okay? But it is not to be trifled with and This is what St. Augustine has to say about that. About venial sin. Listen carefully. While he is in the flesh, man cannot help but have at least some light sins. But do not despise these sins which we call light. If you take them for light when you weigh them, tremble when you count them. Tremble when you count them. A number of light objects makes a great mass. A number of drops fills a river. A number of grains makes a heap. What then is our hope? In St. Augustine's answer, above all, confession. Above all, confession. Confession is the antidote. Because in confession, a number of things are happening. Number one, you're schooled in contrition. Contrition isn't something we have. Contrition means I'm sorry for my sins because they offend God. Attrition means I'm sorry for my sins because I'm afraid that I'm going to end up in hell. That's a good thing to have. But the better thing is is to be sorry for our sins. Because they offend God. That we cannot have. I can't manufacture contrition. It's a gift of God. Given. When you frequent. Regularly confession. When you go to confession. You're schooled into the school of humility. Because you hear yourself saying. Forgive me father for I have sinned. You hear yourself listing your sins. Confession is a school of mercy, because you constantly hear the priest saying, and I forgive you in the name of the Father. Go forth, your sins are forgiven. And above all, there is, since confession is a sacrament, it is a tool that Christ uses to fill your heart with his blessings. Meaning what? What? meaning it's like a dew dropping on a very arid soil. It livens it and bring, it puts life in it. And so your heart becomes more tender, less hardened because of the graces of confession. And this is why our nature resisted so much, resists going to confession so much. But I assure you, if you make an effort to simply double the number of times you go to confession, whatever the number of times you're going right now, just double it. You will see a great benefit in your conscience. So even though these inadvertent sins that we're talking about may not be important, you know, I snapped at somebody, I forgot to do something. I was late to a meeting. I um, I didn't take good care of my appearance when I'm going to see my boss, disrespecting him. Little things here and there throughout my day. If I'm not regularly going to confession, my conscience will be dulled. And I won't even notice those. Therefore, I'm not even aware that I'm offending God. By not being aware that I'm offending God, I'm becoming... Hard of hearing. I'm not now walking on the road to holiness. I'm starting to regress. I'm walking backward. Do you understand? In the spiritual battle, your greatest victories are with venial sins. So, especially in this season of Lent... That is a really wonderful season to think about venial sins. So, last quote I'll give you, 1865. Sin creates a proclivity to sin, meaning a tendency, a habitual tendency. It engenders vice by repetition of the same acts. This results in perverse inclinations which cloud conscience and corrupt the concrete judgment of good and evil. Thus, sin tends to reproduce itself and reinforce itself, but it cannot destroy the moral sense at its root. So, uh, and then in 1869, back to what we are saying about society, sin, sins give rise to social, institu- social situations and institutions that are contrary to the divine goodness. Structures of sin are the expression and effect of personal sins. They lead their victims to do evil in their turn. In an an, an analogous, Analogous. analogous sense, they constitute a social sin. So just as an individual can become sinful or habitually sinful, society at large can become habitually sinful. And to a habitually sinful society, there is no natural remedy. There is no quick fixes. It happens in the realm of grace. Grace has to flood society to be able for society to recognize the sin and change. And the only avenue, the only normal avenue of grace that God gave us in the order of mercy are the sacraments. Chiefly, the Mass. Now, God in His wrath can also bring mercy through the four writers of the Apocalypse, right? Plagues, earthquakes, economic disruption, and wars. So, any one of those are can be used by God, and all four together, to put an end to social sin, to bring us back to Him, or for punishment. Do do you understand? In all those things, God is in control. There is the illusion that he may be absent. He's an absentee God, but that's just an illusion. He's always in control. The question is, what are we going to end up with as a society? His mercy or his wrath? That's what it boils down to. All right. So here are also things you can do in this land. When Our Lady spoke to uh, Lucia, she told her about offenses committed against her uh, Immaculate Heart. And Saint Lu- um, Saint Lucia was, um, I don't think she was canonizing, she's like, anyway. Mm. Um, she was given to understand there are f- five main types of blasphemies and offenses committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary that is, against the Immaculate Conception, that's the first one. Rejecting the Immaculate Conception is number one. Number two, Mary's virginity. Her divine maternity. Her spiritual motherhood of mankind. When somebody says, oh Mary is just a vessel. right? That's, that is a blasphemy against the Mother of God.
0: Okay?
1: When I came here to the United States, actually to... to, to Canada, and the United States. I was shocked beyond belief when I heard people speak of Mary as if she's a vessel. Because to me, uh, pure logic says that if you come into my house, me as an individual, and just not me, anybody that I would consider to be normal, and you insult my mother by calling her a vessel, you'd be thrown out. Yeah? Yeah? Okay, well, Jesus was born in a similar culture. And if, while he was alive, you'd come to his house and you'd tell him, Oh, your mother is just a vessel, you'd probably be thrown out. You don't, you don't need Greek grammar and uh, reading gospel in the Greek to figure those things out. If you understand family, it should come readily to you. So, anyway, her, her, uh, her spiritual motherhood and for the offenses of those who encourage in the hearts of children indifference, contempt, and hatred of her. And finally, as reparation for those who out, outrage her in her holy images. So, uh, that's when she prescribed the five Saturday. So, another thing you might want to do is first the first Saturday of every month. Go to confession, go to Mass, say the rosary, meditate for 15 minutes, on the rosary and on the sufferings of Our Lady. Five consecutive months, you'd be doing reparation against these sins. All right. The last point I want to bring to your attention, and I'll stop here, is this. God's wrath is aroused by the offense against Him. Guilt may begin even before the offender realizes what he has done. Why? Because objectively, God is offended. You understand? Yeah. And it's only through the mercy of Christ. Only through his mercy and death on the cross, he bore all those sins that we don't incur the entire, <clears throat> entire punishment. So, you know, when in, uh, when we, in the Latin rite, we, we, we say the confide, or I confess to Almighty God, Right? I confess the i God to you Mother. Since I've sinned in my, in my thoughts, in my words, in what I have done. I hope today you have a better appreciation of the what I failed to do. It doesn't necessarily mean that you didn't, for instance, uh, you were supposed to cook and you didn't. It doesn't only mean that; it means also all those times when you offended God. And you failed to recognize it. So, in this season of Lent, my wish for you would be that you meditate on two things. God's holiness. God's power. God's omnipotence. Who God really is. And on your own nothingness. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Meditate on those two things. Take him in meditation. And then ask God to deepen in you an awareness of his love, his mercy, his power, and of your own dependence on him. Let's finish with a word of prayer, and then we can take some questions. Yes. Yes, indeed. When we think about all the things that we can do to offense God it offends God. All the actions that we that we commit that offends Him, you're absolutely right. We do not stand a chance. Now, you know what? That might sound obvious to you, but it's actually God's grace working in your heart that makes you realize we don't stand a chance. Because to a lot of other people, it's our due. I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. And
0: I've seen
1: that. Yes. So that is... The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This is the book of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Without the fear of God, there is no wisdom. You realize who God is, you realize who you are. Now, you and I, we don't stand a chance, absolutely. Then we look at the cross, and we see him on the cross, and remember what he said. He said, for, for man, it is impossible. For God, nothing is impossible. So yes, you and I don't stand a chance. But with God, there is no question of chance. We only have to ask, he will answer. But we have to ask. So this is the way you ask. You recognize we're doing all these things. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us. Now you're on your way. Now you entered into this filial relation with God. You're asking Him, He will answer. That's what He wants. The problem is, most of, most of us are self sufficient. I only need God for the big crisis. Other than that, I can take care of it. Thank you very much. How can He help people like that? Do you understand? So, no, this is wonderful. When you are in a sense, odd, and having the right kind of fear, which is fear of offending God, you're blessed because you realize who you are and who He is. You want to continue on that journey. So, yes, it is true. Let's be very clear. It is absolutely true. We do not want to fear God like like an abused child might fear an abusive father. No, not only that. You see, you want to be afraid of offending him because you love him. But we cannot get there. You understand? We start by simply being afraid of offending him because I don't want to go to hell. That's a good spot to be there. But it's not static. What I'm saying is God is not a statue. You have that fear, he will lead you to filial fear and filial love. Right? Yes, I want my children to be close to me. Absolutely. But let's not make mistakes here. I'm not their friend. I'm their father. Likewise with God. Yes, God is closer to us than we are close to ourselves. True. But he is God. Not my buddy. Yeah? And that's the school of holiness we're talking about here. And it is a school that comes from the beginning of wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord. He teaches all these in your heart and leads you to the right way of worshiping Him in truth and in spirit. Yes? Yes. Yes. That, that's the thing. We, we are living in, an, in a society of entitlement. Heaven is my due. Of course I'm going to have a good person. All right. You're in for a big surprise. It doesn't work this way. Yes. Very good question. Excellent question. I always love that question. So, remember, you go to confession and the priest says your sins are forgiven. That means what? Exactly what is going on here. God will not remember those sins. But there is temporal punishment due to sin. This is justice. The example is a kid breaks the neighbor's window playing baseball. He didn't do it on purpose, he broke the window. goes and says i'm sorry i broke the window they say you're forgiven replace the window window. this is good for the kid but it's justice right so is there something we can do to avoid that absolutely now it gets really scary because god went out of his way to make it possible for us to make it to heaven out of his way we have no excuses the first and most common way is called. Indulgent. Thank you, indulgences. M- ha- make use of indulgences. An indulgence, what is an indulgence? Is nothing more than the church opening her treasury of mercy to pay on your behalf. It, the church pays your temporal punishment. It's like a bail the church bails you out. Those are called indulgences. Get educated on them and don't miss an occasion when you can gain an indulgence. That's number one. Yeah? Number two. You've heard me say this a number of times. Um, This, I mean, let, let me go back to this. The five Saturdays. Read the promises of Our Lady for anyone who does the five Saturdays. That's another way. The third way, and there are so many that I'll tell you about, and you can go to corbono.com, my website, and you'll find it there, is a three-year devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. If, for three consecutive years, you say to our Father, to Hail Mary, to Glory Be, while meditating on the blood that Jesus lost on His way to to, uh, Golgotha to be crucified, then... He promises the following. On the day of your death, you'll go straight to heaven. Not just you, your entire family. Not just your entire family, four generations down. There are no excuses for us. The things that Jesus made possible for us to gain eternity... Are just beyond belief. I mean, he brings it down to our level. Right? Because you can think, okay, all I have to do is say those things and try my best to meditate on it. Uh, and I'm done. I, it's not lofty thoughts or deep theology or just that's it. Now it's three years. Yeah. And you can't miss a day. Every day. And if you miss a day, you, keep, you, you begin again. Right? And I like John's um, insight. When he came to me and said, that really means you're going to say it for the rest of your life.
0: <laughs>
1: right? So, Well, if you think about it, you're meditating on the passion of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? So every day you're thinking about Jesus who died for you. Well, that's bound to bring graces into your heart. It's a wonderful way to spend some 15 minutes or 10 minutes of your day. So there are plenty of ways. But the most important thing, right? is to recognize who God is, who we are. And to ask and call on His mercy. Then we're speaking about His mercy in truth. We're not making light of it. We're not taking it for granted. We're not assuming that God is mercy by default. No matter what we do, God is merciful. In fact, there is a sect in Iraq that worship the devil. You know why? This, this, this particular sect, you know Why? Because God is merciful, so we'll worship the devil and then we'll ask for forgiveness and we're done. Who, who sold them that? Pardon? Who sold them that idea? Well, the devil. Who do you think <laughs> sold them that idea? It's a good question. Exactly, right? Yes. Of course. Uh, uh, the, it, it, you know, Luther. If you really understand where he came from, you, you, you. You sort of set him ne- next to St. Francis. and Between him and St. Francis, there's really almost like a difference of a comma. Because he was an Augustinian monk. And as an Augustinian monk, he was working really, really hard to, uh, uh, on his concupiscence, on his vices. And he had a great sense of perfection. But Luther worked on his perfection with his own strength. Relying on his own efforts. And he never was able to succeed. We know why. So instead of realizing that by his own strength, he simply cannot obtain that peace that he was seeking, he concluded that it could never be obtained and that it is not God's will. And from then on, everything else followed. Right. So at the bottom of it, Luther's, Error is in a misunderstanding of who he is and who God is. Remember the passage I read to you last week from Father Ciz- Chizek? Father Chizek, who was in Russia, did the same mistake initially. He relied on his own strength for seven years. But then in his case, he didn't conclude, Oh, well, that means that you know, none of us can succeed. All our work is useless. He concluded rightfully, well, I messed up. I was doing it all by myself. I wasn't relying on God. Look at St. Francis. St. Francis went to see the Pope, and he was received with pump and gold and this and that and the other, and he's like, whoa. Or they wouldn't even receive him. What did St. Francis say? He didn't say, oh, well, the church is corrupt, and these cardinals and the Freemasons and this and that. Okay, we'll pray. Spend the night in prayer. spend the night in prayer he did the opposite he increased his work of mercy didn't decrease it but he was relying on God all the way his grace is phenomenal what he received from God to be able to understand that is incredible yeah yeah we are all in danger of committing Luther's mistake by the way all of us precisely because we tend to rely too much on ourselves to do stuff and then, how do we express it? We don't express it as loftily as Luther did. We say, where's God? How come God is not hearing me? How come he doesn't listen to my prayer? Right? We put God on trial. Same attitude. We have to be, at least when, we, when it happens, because it will happen, recognize let's recognize it. And then, do a little bit like St. Philip Neri and kind of laugh. Hey Lord, it's just me. right? Remember, a donkey? Right? Not, not make you know. Not start beating ourselves. What a terrible person I am! How horrible I am! And make sure everybody around us is miserable. Right? Just make light of it. Yeah, it's just me. Hey, what do you expect? Right? Yeah. Yes. Yes, indeed. So you're absolutely right. It's a really good intuition. The only thing I would say is that it's the it's it's sort of reversed because they refused the maternity of Mary, everything else that you said followed. Right? Because they moved away from being on the rock. By not being on the rock, these errors are introduced in their understanding because they've lost the conception of who Our Lady is in regards to Jesus. Therefore, they've lost the family. and By losing the family, they're refashioning it according to earthly principles. Yeah, exactly. So I would like also to add one more thing on this, on this topic about... Uh, marriage and divorce. So, if you live a covenantal life, if you stick by the covenant, God will bless you. That's His promise. But let's make sure we understand what that means. It doesn't simply mean you're going to Mass and you're you're fulfilling the law of the church and the law of God. That's good, but it's not enough. What is the other part that you need? You have to grow in your spiritual life you have to grow in a life of virtue. And you have to impart that on your children. So if you're not sacrificing for your children, if you're not willing to offer your life, like Mary had said, for your family, you're not living it covenantally because we're all supposed to be holocaust for God. But if you do that, then with all your problems and your shortcomings, God blesses your family. Marriage is a school of holiness. Marriage is hard. Why is it hard? Because it is meant to sanctify you, to make you a saint. So God is constantly working on us through our marriage. If we're open to life, if we're open to his call, if we're open to his word, if we're going to confession, if we are trying to grow in our virtues, then marriage sanctifies us. Otherwise, it breaks. Yes? Well, okay, so the question is about Lent and sacrifice in Lent. Now, let's remember one thing. The purpose of sacrifice in Lent is so that what? Sacrificing in Lent is like a spring cleaning. You go into this room, and there's plenty of stuff in it. So you decide to take some stuff out. So why are you taking some stuff out? What's the purpose of taking some stuff out? So you can put some more stuff in. So what is the stuff out that you're taking and the stuff in that you're bringing in? The stuff out that you're taking is your attachment to worldly things, right? Or to vices, or to ways of life. Okay, that's what you're taking out. What are you bringing in? Yes, but... New new good habits. Okay, but but practically speaking, how are you doing that? Prayer. That's it. Prayer. So, you're sacrificing something, so you can have more prayer. If you're only sacrificing, and there's no more prayer... Like I like what Father Tufi told us two, two, a week ago. He said, uh, uh, "He said Lent without prayer is diet." <laughs> <laughs>
0: right?
1: I think that summarizes it. Right? So it, it serves a completely different purpose. So that's what the purpose of Lent is. What if it's not Lent, just sacrificing in general? So sacrificing in general, God gave us a pantheon of saints. Not two of which are the same. You have Saint Francis. You have Saint Teresa, little child Jesus. Saint Teresa, little child Jesus. She didn't go anywhere. She didn't walk barefoot. She didn't eat stale food. She lived in a monastery. She, her needs were, were, um, were given to her. She had a roof under her head. She slept on the bed. Saint Francis didn't do any of those things. Her way was the little way. Saint Teresa of Calcutta, right? Do small things, but love God greatly. That's another way. Yeah? I guess the is, so you can offer small things, but if you offer them for God's love, that's enough. That's it. It's not that easy. But see, think of it differently. Because when you say, I'm sacrificing, say, replace the word sacrificing with, I'm loving God. Now, ask your question with those terms. Okay, God, I filled your quota today. I'm done. <laughs> you get it? Okay, so God is never going to give you more than you can take on. You have a state of life. You're living in it. And he gives you ways of offering him gestures of love right where you are. Sometimes you don't have to go look for them. He brings them to you. Okay could be somebody talking and annoying you you just offer it up you pray for this person right you don't eat a chocolate because you really feel like eating but you don't but you offer it up for him for sinners that's enough even small things now if god is calling you to more then maybe what you want to do is go to a retreat and do some spiritual discernment lord what are you calling me to do right So the sermon then has to precede a deeper calling. Is that making sense? Okay. Yes. Never see them again. Well, I suppose. But if if I'm God, which I'm not, thank God, I'll send you another annoying person because it's really good for you, right? The idea is this. To me, when God sends me an annoying person, what he's saying is, I need you to pray for that person. Right? So... That person needs prayer. Pray for them. And then reflect on your own weaknesses that even when a person is just standing in front of you, you're annoyed. Think about what happened to me when Pilate flogged me for no reason. Okay? So you take that as a point of meditation. But again, it's not about beating ourselves, right? It's okay, yeah, I got it, but it's me, right? Remember? Okay? Keeping the right attitude, not being heavy with it, just, yeah, well. So, if you can always turn annoyances into prayer, what a wonderful occasion God is sending you. Those are gifts. Because every time you're praying, you're gaining something in heaven. Not bad. Right? Yes. Good deal. All right. God bless you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.